John chapter 8. Let me ask you this question as we get started here. Raise your hand if you like the game of chess. Chess. <laughs> we have a few smart people in the room. Okay? If you play chess, you're smart. End of story. Done. Okay? So everybody go home, download it on your phone, play chess, and you'll automatically be smart. Okay? That's how it goes. You're smart, you play chess. All right? Anyone never played the game of chess? Never. Really? I find that so surprising. Okay? Very exciting. Chess is an amazing game. It's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. It's very strategic. It's one of those games that you have to be paying attention all the time. The entire game, you have to be paying attention. I usually get caught up in this. I will have a strategy. Okay? I have no idea what the strategies are called. I'm not a nerd. Okay? <laughs> Fill in the blank there, whatever you want. But... Um, I don't know what they're called, but I have a strategy. I have this way that I want to play the game, and I'm usually playing my wife. And so I'm like, I'm going to beat her. I've got it all figured out. This is what's going to happen. And in just a moment of time, she's got me. Because I wasn't paying attention to her side of the game. The reality is you have to be paying attention to your side of the game. You have to be paying attention to your opponent's game as well. I'm not a very good chess player, but I hate it. I hate it. When you've worked so hard and you've got your opponent in check. And in fact, you've got them in check from two different positions, right? And you're like, there is no way they're getting out of this one. There is no way. I've got them. They make one wrong move and I'm going to do this and that's it. That's the end. And out of the blue, checkmate. I'm like, what? How did they even do that? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Because you think you got the game won, and in a moment, in an instant, you're left sitting there dumbfounded. How did they do that? How did they get out of that? I had them beat. There was no way they could have gotten that out of that. And sometimes I think people in the Bible are trying to play chess, but real-life chess. I often find that the Pharisees and Jesus are in this constant game of chess. This constant chess match against Jesus, really. The Pharisees were known as the religious elite of their day. And they did not like Jesus at all. Not one bit. They did not want him around. He was upsetting, disrupting their way of life. And they did not like it. So they're after Jesus. They're trying to put him, if you will, in checkmate. They're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to conquer him and be done with him at all, for all. It's so funny to me, though, because Jesus is not playing chess with them. Okay, let me say that again. It's funny to me because Jesus is not playing chess with them. Quite frankly, Jesus is trying to teach them. Quite frankly, Jesus is trying to transform them. And while they're off playing this game, Jesus is like, listen, guys, I really don't want to play this game. I just want to teach you. I just want to show you how to live your life for my glory. And the scribes and the Pharisees are constantly, constantly putting Jesus in check. If you don't know what in check is, because there's several people. Listen, it's basically like you could be killed here. Okay, Your king could be done and over. Could be. And you kind of want to trap them. You kind of want to put the pressure on. And so Jesus is constantly, quote, having the pressure put on him by the Pharisees. Constantly. They have thought through their plan of attack. And in their minds, there is no 
way that he can get out of this one. There is no way he can get out, and before they know it, they are left standing there, scratching their heads, going, what in the world just happened? How did he just beat us again? And our passage today is that exact same scenario. Go to John chapter 8, John chapter 8 and verse 1. The Bible says this, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So just picture the scene with me. He's going up to the Mount of Olives, and then he's coming back, which happens quite a bit. Okay, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, comes back. He's now sitting in the temple, and Jesus sits down and begins teaching all the people on the word of God. And he sat down and taught them. Verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said, uh, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, I want you just to, again, imagine the scene. Picture yourself in this scene. All of a sudden, we're all sitting here today. Somebody is teaching you. You're following, okay? The only, only difference is I'm not sitting down, okay? Someone's teaching you, and all of a sudden, the doors burst open. Somebody walks in. There's this major commotion, and these religiously dressed men are pushing this lady forward and saying she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, all of us would, first of all, be embarrassed. Think about the lady in this position, how embarrassed she would be. She got thrown into the midst of this group of people, brought into the center of attention, and claimed that she was caught in the act of adultery. What an awkward scene. How embarrassed would you be if that happened? Again, look at verse 4 with me. The Bible says, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? But what sayest thou? I want you to notice something about the Pharisees, or if you will, the religious crowd. I want you to notice something about the Pharisees or the religious crowd. If you're in the habit of writing things down, write this down. For the religious, their pride is in the law. Notice verse 5 again with me. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? I want you to understand this morning that the religious people of the day, their entire focus, their entire ideal, their entire uh, life was wrapped up in the law. The law of Moses. And quite frankly, the law of Moses was all that was entailed. That's all the information they had. And so they're wrapped up in it. But I want to take this a step further, and I want you to write this down. For the religious, their pride is the law. So it wasn't just that their pride was in the law. Their pride was the law. As you study the Bible and as you walk through, you'll begin to notice that the Pharisees cared more about themselves, and they used that pride as their law. Oh, sure, they reference back to the law of Moses constantly. But you'll see that they started making up new laws. And they started making up more laws. And they started adding to the law of God so that they could bolster their pride. So that they could look better. So that they could be seen of men, the Bible says. It's constant. It happens all the time. So for the religious, their pride is the law. They care about nothing more than their own pride. Think about this. The law enabled them 
to find flaws in others so as to dismiss their own flaws. The law enabled them to find flaws in other people so as to dismiss their own flaws. And listen, we, the religious, as we sit here today, we do this exact same thing. You say, Pastor Yeomans, we're no longer under the law. The book of Galatians, have you ever read it? Yes, I have read the book of Galatians. We're no longer under the law. I understand that. We're under the age of grace. Yes, I understand that. But what I want you to see is we do this all the time. We focus so much. We think so much about other people and what they ought to be doing. We think about other people and what they ought to be doing. And then this is what we do. We desperately search for flaws in them. We desperately search for flaws in them so that we can dismiss our own flaws. The funny thing is this. We cannot keep all of the rules that we put on ourselves. You realize that? Have you ever done that? Children are wonderful for pointing this out to you. Children are wonderful. Hey, don't do that. Why? You just did it. Hey, don't talk to your mother that way. Why? That's the way you talk to her, right? They point out our flaws so stinking well. I hate it. But here we are in the midst of this, and we try to keep all of these things, but this is what we want. We know we can't. We want everyone else to keep them all, though. We want everyone else to do what we think they ought to do. And quite frankly, we all have different importance levels. I think this one's important, and I think this one's important, so you better both do all of them. After all, this is something that is so incredibly hard to keep up. Most of us, if we're honest, we don't even realize that we're looking for people's flaws. In fact, the moment I said you're looking, most of us, religious crowd, we look for people's flaws, you were probably offended by that. How dare he say that? I don't look for people's flaws. I, it's, we'll even go this far. That's just naturally who I am. I have a gift to look for people's flaws. And I find them and I tell people about them and I just let them know. We have a ter terrible habit of comparing ourselves and trying to act, talk, live better than anyone else. We have a terrible habit of it. We went to a race yesterday, the 5K Foam Fest. And in my mind, when you use the term race, it's on. It's on. But what my wife tried to tell me before, but I didn't listen, was we're just here for fun. I can't do it. I can't do it. So literally, we take off, everybody's kind of running, and we're just kind of slowly going through, and I'm like itching inside. I got to start going. I, I got to start going. And the first part is you're going up Boulder Mountain. Right? You're going up it. So it's not easy. And all these people are walking. And all I could think of was we need somebody to direct traffic here. Okay, all walkers stand to the right so all the runners can go around just like driving, right? But nowadays we got drivers going really slow in the fast lane and it drives me insane. So I'm telling you, everything in my life is a competition. 
Can I do this better than somebody else? It's constantly a competition. And we're all like that to some extent or another. I'm constantly looking for ways to be better than you, so I have to find your flaws and act on them. We've made a terrible habit of comparing ourselves. And these Pharisees are trying, trying to set up Jesus in their chess game. They are looking for an area to trip him up. And I want you to understand, this adulterous scene was either set up or they were looking for it. It was either set up or they were looking for it. After all, they caught her in the, notice, the very act. I hope, hopefully I don't have to explain that too much. My, um, my mom always used to say that it takes two to tango. Okay? Some of you are already getting it. Meaning, my mom's meaning was... I would always blame my brother for the problems that we were having. We would be fighting, always, constantly. And my mom would, I would say, Mom, it's his fault. And she would always say, it takes two to tango. Meaning, you have a portion in this as well. Please don't make me explain what an adulterous affair and it takes two to tango means. Please don't make me explain that. Okay, let me ask you the question, where was the man? If this was an adulterous affair, if this was something that was actually happening, why was only the woman brought? It takes two to tangle in this moment. So this was either set up or they were waiting for it to happen so that they could exploit this lady. Notice they were looking, looking, they were looking for other people's flaws. And they were only looking for the flaws, notice, that would benefit them. They were only looking for the flaws that would benefit them. In this case, guess what? They didn't need the man. Some people think that one of the men was actually one of the Pharisees or one of the scribes that actually brought the woman in. We have no idea. But I want you to understand this. They didn't need the man. The man did not help their cause. Only the woman was the one who would help their cause in this story. Now let me stop right here. They were perfectly willing to use this wicked, vile, sinning lady as an opportunity. I want you to understand, I have no doubt that this lady was actually caught in adultery. In fact, it has been said, and again, this is not in the Bible, but that she was actually a harlot. It was probably well known that she would be sleeping around. So it wouldn't be that hard to believe. So they didn't need the man who it it might take a case to build. Listen, this was a lady that probably already had a reputation. And so what are they doing? They're looking for this opportune moment to jump where they can get a hold of this and, and, and make sure... That they can trap Jesus. So if you will, the Pharisees have Jesus again in check. What is he going to do? I want you to understand in in verse 5 here again. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? The, the, The idea here really truthfully is, that's what the law said. Someone who was caught in the act of adultery with two witnesses... Could be stoned. In order to abide by the law, Jesus has to, has to condemn her to death. You realize that? 
in order to abide by the law, Jesus has to condemn her to death. However, if he did not, he is soft, he is spineless, and he is the promoter of sin. So do you see? Do you see how they got him? Listen, Jesus, you better condemn her to death, but that is absolutely antithetical to what he has already been preaching. So here you go, Jesus. You need to condemn her to death, and if you don't, you are a worthless, sin-promoting, spineless, soft master teacher. They got him. This is going to be so easy. This is going to be perfect. We're going to destroy his reputation. But I want you to notice verse 6. Notice this, they said, tempting him. They might have to accuse him. But Jesus (laughs) stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Notice this, as though he heard them not. (laughs) Did you guys hear something? I didn't hear anybody talking. So he stoops down, he gets down, and he just starts writing in the sand. Now, how many of you want to know what he was writing? All of us do. We desperately want to know what in the world he was writing. But here's the deal. We have no idea what he was writing. The Bible doesn't give us that information. But this was not an uncommon thing for teachers to do. Like, today we have screens, right? Computer screens, we can draw and we can do all kinds of different things. Blackboards, right? Uh, Whiteboards, all these different things that we have. But they didn't have those things, so teachers would often get down on the ground and draw or write to make their point, to show them. We used to do this when giving directions about 15 years ago, right? I need a stick. I need a stick, right? So I can draw on the ground and show you which way to go. That's what we used to do. So it's not that far-fetched to understand that Jesus was doing something, showing them something on the ground. But notice that as he did this, he did it as if he heard them not. Completely ignoring. It was as if he just kept on teaching. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him. Anybody have children that just continually ask you something? How many times do you have to say mom in a four-second period? Right? Mom, 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 mom. Listen! Stop! And it's as if they, they aren't even paying attention to what he's working on on the ground. They just keep asking him, come on, Jesus, what are you going to do? Come on, Jesus, what are you going to do? Come on, Jesus, what are you going to do? 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 Really annoying, isn't it? And so he's sitting here thinking, and finally the Bible says this. He lifts himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. You see, Jesus finally stands up and puts the ball in their court. And we use this term all the time, don't we? Most of us use it because somebody's kind of getting after us. We say, hey, he that has, has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And we, we use this constantly, but here's the reality. Jesus is finally saying, listen, all right, guys, you want to start pushing the envelope here? I'm going to put it back in your court. I'm going to put the ball back in your court. You're going to take care of this. And he that is without sin, he that is perfect, he that is sinless, you get to cast the first stone. Notice verse 8. After he says that, what does he do? Stoops back down, 
starts writing in the sand again. Verse 9, and they which heard it, notice, being convicted. Being convicted by their own conscience. Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. Jesus stoops back down to write on the ground. And they all begin to leave. They were all convicted about their sin. They were all convicted about their sin. And they all begin to leave. From the oldest, even to the last. I want to say something here. I want to point this out. Older people, sometimes we... It's all right. Everybody paying attention right here, all right? As older people, sometimes we are the ones who start the action. Sometimes we are the ones who start the action. So older people, sometimes we are the ones who influence action. And so sometimes we look at the younger, younger uh, generation, we just go, ugh. And sometimes the younger generation looks at the older generation and just goes, ugh. But in this case, listen, often what's going on here is passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. Let me ask you today, do you have a heart desire to find the flaws of other people? Do you have a heart desire to find the flaws of other people? Where does that start? Well, guess what? Guess what I'm doing right now? I'm teaching my children. I'm teaching my children to find the flaws in other people. You say, oh, I, don't, I would never tell my children to do that. Oh, no, I never said you had to tell them. They watch you. They watch you pick people apart. They listen to you. They hear you. They watch you understand. Monkey see, monkey do. I want you to understand that the elder leads first. Now, you could say, listen, they were the one who realized that they had been beaten first. Maybe true. But I want you to understand they influenced action. They all leave. Remember, Jesus and this woman are now standing in the midst of all these other people who were still there. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. When we read these two verses, our religious mind cringes. Does it not? It cringes. How in the world could Jesus let her get away? We have openly displayed the flaw. I have openly displayed the flaw. I brought it to her attention. I, I showed him that it was her fault. She had done it. I openly displayed the flaw. And Jesus is letting her get away. She deserves to be punished for her sins. She deserves to be punished for her sins. Let me ask you a question. Does she deserve to be punished for her sins? Yes or no? 
Everybody say yes, okay? Does she deserve to be punished for her sins? Yes. She absolutely does. According to the law, she deserved to be punished for her sins. When your child does something wrong, do they deserve to be punished for their wrongdoing? Yes. This is not hard, and this is the way we live our lives. This is the way we think. You have to be punished for your sins. She deserves to be stoned. How could Jesus ever let her get away? This is what we say. He must not care about sin. He must not care about sin. Because sin needs punished. Sin needs punished. And by the way, it needs to be punished right now. It needs to be taken care of right now. He must not care about sin. He must be okay with letting everybody get away with their sin. He just let this lady off with a warning. That's how we view it. She's probably going to go right back and do it again. This is how we often view this story. We view this story as just a little slap on the wrist, like, don't you do that again. But I want you to understand this is far more important. When this plays out here at Bible Baptist, when we have openly brought to, our, to the leadership's attention a, someone's flaw, this is how it plays out at Bible Baptist. We think this, well, if God won't take care of it, I'll take care of it. If God won't take care of it, I'll take care of it. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to, and we, we, we think this logically. We rationalize it this way. How else are they going to learn? How else are they going to learn? But if you're in the habit of writing things down, write this down. Jesus' statement is not a statement of dismissal but a statement of deliverance. You see, the reality is he's not dismissing her sin. Don't miss this. He's delivering her from it. Don't, you say, what's the difference? Oh, we're going to get to that. But don't miss this key point. Jesus' statement is not a statement of dismissal. Jesus' statement is a statement of deliverance. He's delivering her from her sin. You see, a little later on in this chapter, we see Jesus twice. Twice refer to freedom. Let's look at them. Look at verse 20, or excuse me, 32. John chapter 8 and verse 32. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, and ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you what? Free. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jump down to verse 36. The Bible says, if, if the Son therefore shall make you free, notice, ye shall be free indeed. You see, Jesus' focus was not necessarily on dismissing her sin. It was upon freeing her from her sin. Our religious minds are far too focused on finding and condemning sin. Don't miss this, please. If you're sleeping right now, wake up, okay? You all know the story. All I did so far was walk through the story. Pay attention to this, please. 
our religious minds are too focused on finding and condemning sin that we forget about the fact that Jesus died to free them from their sin. Did you miss that? You said, no, 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 no. I know Jesus died to free them from their sin. I know that, but we never act like it. We never act like Jesus actually came to free them from their sin. We act like Jesus came to destroy them. We, we rejoice, not again, we, we used this a couple weeks ago. We rejoice not when one sinner repents, but when one sinner is put in hell. Because we want sin eradicated. We don't want any sin in our presence. And listen, that's holiness. That's the holiness of God. But our religious minds are far too focused on finding and condemning sin that we forget about the fact that Jesus died to free them. So let me ask this question because all of you are thinking it. So does that mean we don't take sin seriously? So does that just mean like, oh, okay, you sin, you committed adultery, no big deal. I want you to notice what Jesus says. Let me draw your back to your attention to verse 11. John chapter 8 and verse 11. She said, no man, Lord, and Jesus said unto her, not, notice, neither do I condemn thee. Go and what? Sin no more. Let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus, do you think Jesus just dismissed that? That was just a contrite statement? Not at all. That was the most powerful statement that he could have given her. Because Jesus' statement was not just a statement of dismissal, it was a statement of deliverance. Go and sin no more. Jesus and God still take sin extremely seriously. Let me, let, me, let me talk to some of you in the room this morning. Some of you are living in sin and thinking, God's merciful, no big deal. My sin's paid for, no big deal. I can get away with it. Listen, you might be able to, but that's not the point. The point is, Jesus didn't come to just forgive you of your sin. Notice this, he came to deliver you from your sin. To give you victory over sin so that you don't have to live there any longer. You can have an exceedingly abundant life without the, the problems, the slavery of sin, if you will just trust the Lord to give you the victory. But remember, Jesus died to free us from our sin. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 17. We all know verse 16, right? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at verse 17. For God sent his son in, not in, let me, let me start over. For God sent not his son into the world to what? To condemn the world. What, what? That the world through him might be saved. You see, Jesus wants us all to be saved. And the religious crowd is constantly running around looking for flaws, constantly running around trying to find something wrong with someone else, and constantly trying to poke and, and prod and all of these different things and saying, listen, I'm better than you. I didn't do that. I dress better than she dresses. 
I don't use the words that he uses. I work harder than he works, and we begin comparing ourselves among ourselves constantly back and forth. I'm going to give you an unusual phrase. But if you're in the writing things, I want you to write this down. Bible Baptist Church ought to be a church that cares more about seeing sinners freed than seeing sinners fried. I mean this with all sincerity. It's a little funny, but I mean this with all sincerity. We want to see them fried. Oh, Pastor Yeomans, I would never say that I want them to go to hell. I, I can agree with you there. But we want, we want to see people pay. We want to see people get in trouble. We want to see people do what it is that we had to do. And we got in trouble all our growing up. And so everybody else has to get in trouble. We want to see people fried, not free. Let me ask you a question. Just look at those two words. What's the difference? Mm, one letter, I. One letter. See, the reality is I'm so concerned about me and what I want. I'm so concerned about me and what I think is right. I'm so concerned about me and what I think is the right kind of music to listen to. And I'm so concerned about me and what I think the platform ought to look like. And I'm so concerned about me and what I think she ought to wear. And I'm so concerned about me and what I think and 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 I think. The reality is it's not about you. I've had more conversations in the last three years with people pointing out flaws of other people. Pastor Yeomans, did you know that she did this? Pastor Yeomans, did you know that this happened? Pastor Yeomans, you better take care of this problem. Pastor Yeomans, you better look at this. Pastor Yeomans, Pastor Yeomans, you better do this. And you know how many conversations I've had about, hey, Pastor Yeomans, just talk to somebody and gave them the gospel. Do you know how many times that's happened? You could easily count on one hand. See, this is not, this is not an out there problem. This is an in here problem. We ought to care more about seeing sinners freed. We ought to care more about seeing, seeing sinners freed because, listen, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be doing what's right. I'm not trying to say, oh, sin, no big deal. I'm not at all trying to say that. But when we lose our focus, when we care more about the law and we make the law our priority, we are no better than the Pharisees in John chapter 8. We're literally bursting in the doors and saying, look what I found. Caught him in the very act. I caught him red-handed. No better than the Pharisees. And the Pharisees only cared about finding flaws in people for their own prominence. I want you to look at a passage. We'll put it up on the screen, but you can turn there as well. Galatians chapter 6. I want you to look at what Bible Baptists should be known for. What Bible Baptists should be known for. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, notice the next word. What? Restore such a one. How? In the spirit of meekness. Oh, 
in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Well, I don't have a problem with that. You, you notice that's the only sins that we pick on, right? The ones that we don't have a problem with. Well, I don't struggle with drinking, but that guy over there, man, he struggles with drinking. I, I struggle with pornography, so that means that I'm not going to mess with anybody who struggles with pornography, because I know how that feels. You see, all sin is sin. All sin deserves punishment. But Jesus came not just to deliver you from punishment, but to free you and allow you to have an, an incredible, awesome, powerful, Jesus-filled life free from sin. Bear ye one another's, verse 2, burdens. Bear, bear ye one another's burdens. You know what that means? It means coming alongside of them. I've watched football games. I've watched soccer games. I've watched basketball games where somebody sprains their ankle, twists their knee. I mean, you fill in the blank, and guess what? Two guys, two guys come alongside, and what do they do? They bear his burden. We, the religious crowd, you know what we want to do in those situations? Kick his other knee. Break his other ankle. Ha <laughs> ha, you like it now? Kick them while they're down. When in reality, we'll all be coming alongside, lifting them up, helping them. Look at verse 3. For if a man thinketh himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. See, the reality is this, I believe, that every one of us forgets that we're just like everyone We're just like everyone else. You say, no, 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 I've been here for 30, 40, 50 years. You fill in the blank, whatever, how long you've ever been a Christian. No, 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 you don't understand. I've been here for this long. I know more. Good for you. Knowledge puffeth up. Are you going to use it to serve or are you going to use it to destroy? The questions are very simple. We should be known as a church that cares more about restoring sinners bearing their burdens, and helping them find freedom in Christ. That's what we ought to be known as. Does that mean I'm pushing holiness outside? Uh-uh. We ought to be right. But it ought to be a restoration. It ought to be, hey, come on, I, I see this, let's, let's work on this. And allow God to free from sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your word and the truth in it. Father, this message has been convicting to study. And I will stand here and say that I'm probably one of the worst people to judge. Father, this life is not about me. This life is about you. It only matters what you want and what you think. Father, I pray that you would be the judge. You're the one who gets to say, nor do I condemn thee. Go and sin no, sin no more. It's not my responsibility. Father, would you please help us as a church, as a group of believers, help us care more about seeing people freed. 
than we do about seeing people destroyed. Father, would you please help us, change us. We pray all these things in your name.